welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm joined for the first time in a long time by my movie-reviewing buddy, Alan Appel. Hi there, Tom. Welcome back, Alan. It's great to have you in the studio. Thank and you. a fixture of the WNHH studio for the past two months, Sam Haddleman. Oh, thank you. Host of the Sam Haddleman Show, intern extraordinary. Thank you. Appreciate Great debater it. with station manager Harry Droz. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, Sam. I feel like we haven't had you on since our talk. Was it two summers ago about yeah. Baby Driver yeah, and Spider Man like, Homecoming? It was like two years ago. I, I went back and I, I actually like listened to that show and I was horrified by my thoughts. <laughs> so hopefully I do a little That's, better today. <laughs> was was just, I there? I don't think I was no, there. No, I think, just me I think that was a special oh, summer, I don't think we've been on summer edition. Show. Well, a triad is, a, is an interesting way to talk about movies. Traditionally, you have like a. Roger Ebert and the two guys debating. Now we have three. Well, how applicable, you know, what a transition, Alan, for a movie that follows three characters whose stories intersect over the course of nearly three hours. Uh, I don't think there's another three that I can tie in there, but the movie we're going to be talking about today is called Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood. This is the ninth film from director Quentin Tarantino that uh, follows uh, aging uh, Western B-movie star Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his aging stunt double Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. Uh, and then in an intersecting but kind of adjacent storyline, you've got Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate. This takes place over the course of uh, four days separated by a couple months in 1969. But this is Quentin Tarantino, uh, director of... Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, a uh, whole bunch of other, you know, very popular, very successful, uh, and sometimes very trashy and violent, but always very well-made movies. Uh, this is his his ninth feature, uh, and Alan, I, I told so. I before we hopped in air, I said that this is this the the subject of this movie is one that hits pretty close to me, not because I was in L.A. in 1969 and having a midlife crisis about my uh, waning acting career, but because one of the kind of key entry points for my love of movies, uh, in addition to the Chicago-based kind of film criticism podcast, Film Spotting, was a, a pretty tawdry book called uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls by the former editor of Rolling Stone and Peter Biskind. Uh, and oh, I know who I've met him. In, oh, yeah, have you I, I've met him. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's he's a. <laughs> I've met he, him. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a disappointed and dyspeptic academic. Oh well, definitely this this movie fits or this book fits that mold. It's written in the nineties, uh, but it is about the the new Hollywood. This is the Hollywood of the nineteen seventies, where filmmaker auteurs like Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, kind of took over uh, Hollywood from the studio system that had um, that had created kind of American movies as most people knew it for the previous seventy years. This is a key kind of moment of transition that is coming in response to the kind of cataclysmic social and cultural uprisings of the nineteen sixties. Everything from you know Vietnam War protests, the civil rights movement, kind of slowly making their way into the the movies uh the with the collapse of the kind of stability of the studio system you've got a lot more morally ambiguous narratives uh you know from apocalypse now to the godfather to um taxi driver you know with not just i mean violence has always been a staple of hollywood but the violence depicted in the movies of the new hollywood tends to be what we see in a lot of quentin tarantino movies it is an unflinching look at the violence uh, one that dares you to be entertained by it at the same time same time that it's kind of questioning your own kind of perverse lust for it um and 
this uh, that story of the moment of transition from the old Hollywood to the new Hollywood, from the studio system to this auteur celebratory kind of film culture of the 70s is just fascinating for me. And I feel like Quentin Tarantino, this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is very deliberately set at that moment. The protagonists, at least two of them, Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Brad Pitt, are part of an older Hollywood. They're not the stars of the studio system, but they certainly... Uh, are a part of the uh, the bad guy saloon, elaborate sets and costumes and kind of grand narratives and technical mastery uh, that didn't necessarily uh, represent the kind of personal manifestation of a director, but it was you know this this mass kind of dream industry going into the 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 new you know Roman Polanski led auteur landscape of the seventies. So as you watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at this critical juncture of the you know one of the end moments of the sixties, the Manson murders uh, at this time when the studio system is collapsing and we have the rise of these new you know edgy younger film school rats kind of taking over and making a personal cinema out of a, a studio system. Do you feel like this movie is a fitting tribute to that tumultuous time in cinema history or? Is it uh, the more the tawdry stuff of you know the sex, drugs, and rock and roll generation, but on the on the big screen? Well, I, I want to ignore your your wonderful contextual <laughs> question and, and and ask. Tell me about your acting career in Los Angeles in 1969. So you, what were you like a child actor, four <laughs> years right. old? I cannot believe this I, is I, really true. Or are you making this up? I, there, there was no acting career of mine back in 1969 in L.A. And yet, I feel like I've read enough and watched enough to put oh. myself out there. But do you, I mean, does does this? What what did you make of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? And I don't know, was it resonant of an older time, or at least a transitory time in the history of a medium that we both love so much? Well, uh, I, I I must tell you that. Um, uh, you know, as, as, as someone who, 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 um, grew up in LA and, uh, you know, and I, I, I left, I think in 1964, um, but, you know, lived, lived through a lot of that period, including the Manson murders and so on and so forth. Um, I, I really, I, I think the, uh, uh, the, the distinction that I would make or my reaction to this film is that it really is not a movie about, 1969 and not even a movie about 1969 in hollywood i think you give it a wonderful benefit of the doubt by giving it the social significance of what it what it reflects as 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 you've talked about it but it really is i mean it's really um like a movie about movies right um it's it's not um it's not to me a movie about um um you know kind of the the um uh, the the reality of uh, of the relationship, for example, of the of the movie industry to the uh, anti war movement, um, uh, you know, I, I, it 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 just um, you know, it's uh, it's the kind of uh, is the kind of film that I wish I would have been um, more excited about, but uh, I, I have a problem with Quentin Tarantino, hmm. and I think a lot of people do. I think there's a, a pro and an anti Tarantino camp, and Unfortunately, uh, I may never always felt that that uh, when I leave these films, um, I, I leave wonderful images, and he certainly evokes images of uh, of of movies about 1969. But there is very little about 1969, and so um, I guess I'm not contradicting what you said, but I I'm frustrated because when I go to a movie, I, I sort of want to watch a story 
And I don't have a story here. I have uh, a movie about a movie which essentially is on celluloid, a kind of scrapbook of the greatest things Quentin Tino mm. remembers from the movies that he saw about the movies in 1969. So this to me is visually uh, fills up the eyes. So Sam, but I, I, there's no movie here for me. Sorry, guys. Sam, I, th- I think the critique that Alan's making is a pretty common one across Tarantino's career, and yet it's also what's so cool about. It. I mean, Pulp Fiction also does not have a conventional story in the way that you know we would usually expect from a movie of of that budget and star power. It is kind of stitching together all of these random kind of sad sack characters in a non chronological narrative where they all kind of intersect at one point. But it's the set pieces, these like incredible conversations that Tarantino is able. To to uh, craft punctuated by really kind of vicious violence that make it both exciting and unpredictable um, or, or, this, or those like me would call them utterly self-indulgent and or written, self or self-indulgent so, written by a guy who does not really know how to write a scene or develop a character did you find this movie lacking in story because one th- one word that you know my brief understanding of your reaction to the movie was that I, it was either a little boring or definitely a lot slower than some of the other movies that you have seen by Tarantino. W- did it suffer because of that, or were you into the self-reflexive nature of it? Um, well, w- w- with this movie specifically, I-, I-, I found it a little bit drawn out, but I think it, it was a drawback to kind of the westerns that you, you see that kind of uh, that kind of influence in Tarantino's movies constantly, like a lot of dialogue, a big shootout at the end. Like it kind of reminded me of like Fistful of Dollars or something like that. And you could definitely see the influences, and they usually really work for. Uh, Tarantino in movies like Jackie Brown, like I, I'm I'm part of the pro Tarantino crowd. Reservoir Dogs, I watched that way too early as a kid. I had way too much access to the internet around age 13, 14. So I was I just became obsessed with it. It played out like a 50 Cent album to me. I thought it was just like I understand that it's violence for the sense of violence, and that kind of turns people off who who like certain type of film. But for me, it was the ends all be all. I thought that Tarantino's movies were absolutely amazing. But I find that he now kind of draws back to too much of his influences, I think. I think rather than making his own film, it kind of felt like I was talking about, like a fistful of dollars got like a, a movie like that where it just, he focuses so much on the dialogue, but there's just not that much there. And usually I'm okay with the, with the plot line being kind of diluted and not being revealed to the end, but it just kind of felt like a depressing soap opera with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and almost like a, like a bromance love story. And then at the end, he kind of made up for it with like, some of the coolest 15 minutes of violence I've seen in years. And again, usually it comes together a lot better, but I've found it. I found his recent films post Django to be kind of self-indulgent. Like he thinks that the dialogue is worth speaking about more than developing the plot of the character. So before you let me just say that this is, so this is a movie that ends in a way that I think a lot of viewers are not expecting. So let's hold off on spoiler talk besides hinting that there is quite a violent conclusion. Maybe we'll in the last 10 minutes of the show, we'll talk specifically about our reactions to what happens at the end of this movie. But Alan, what, what both you and, uh, and uh, Sam are describing is also very central to the, you know, the rise of new Hollywood, which is what I so love about Tarantino and that era of filmmaking, which is that all of a sudden the character was the most important part of the movie. You didn't have to rely upon kind of an artificial creation of suspense in order to to think, to be entertained. Uh, you had these people you could just spend hours sitting with because of the complexity of their psychology and the riveting kind of arc of their own uh, kind who, of internal who are you, workings. Who I mean, are, you I, just, are you describing characters the, in this oh movie? Oh my God, I found... Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton and Brad Pitt's uh, Cliff Booth and also Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate, although maybe we'll talk about 
her character in a second. Let's just talk about because mm-hmm. this is definitely Brad Pitt's and Leonardo DiCaprio's movies. I mean, this talk about harkening back to an era when you had like billboard sized close ups of movie star. I mean, these are two of the biggest movie stars working today, and you feel that star power watching them, and yet the. I don't know the the sadness, the sense of compromise, the sense of loss and nostalgia and lack of self worth by by both of these characters as they come to grips with what DiCaprio says is his uh, increase in awareness of his own uselessness. I found that riveting. Oh man, regardless of where he is in his life, I I feel like these characters, regardless of what they're doing, were incredibly complex and really personal depictions by a director who seems to be going through a midlife crisis of his own, but. I don't know. I, the, did the character not rivet you? <laughs> well, uh, just just to just to uh, pick up on something before I answer your question, just to pick up, so, up on something Sam said. Th- this this movie, like a lot of Tarantino films, is like a compendium of cinematic quotations. But this is a, a, a but that 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 has happened in all of his previous films which were not deliberately about the movie industry. So here you have a movie where his subject is the movies, and he's like, uh, he's unbridled in terms of, I mean, the entire thing is just a, a collection of um, uh, billboards and poses and so on and so forth. Um, FM radio. FM radio. How, all of the incredible how, how, how driving many, sequences where we're listening minutes, to the music of the How many 60s. minutes of this is cars? <laughs> many minutes. There are many minutes. And, and the production so... values and, you know, but, but um, right. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, Paul, I pull out my, I bite my tongue for saying this, but, uh, you know, my uncles would often say when, you know, in the 60s, when I was praising this or that from that era, they would say, to me, uh, you know, like a kind of old fogeyish way. Well, wouldn't that ninety-six million dollars have been better spent on uh, books for kids in school? This is ninety-six million dollars. We should talk, Tom, about the fabulous production values, the classic cars, the recreations of everything under the sun. Now, that's what's memorable to me. You're certainly right that Leonardo DiCaprio, who's a wonderful actor, had uh, you know, and the the bromance between the two of them. That's that's there, but I I would really contend that um, um, that what you call character development is simply uh, an assemblage of superficial on the surface traits. And um, w- what is the most interesting is how much how much as you pointed out that uh, that Tarantino himself might be identifying with the DiCaprio character who's wondering what his career has been worth. And in fact, DiCaprio was reading a Western about a has-been cowboy. A Beaner Bronco Buster. A right. Literary. And I, I, I hope <laughs> DiCaprio would take this movie to heart because this, you know, he is, um, I should point out that many of the directors of his generation, you know, who broke out at the time that you're talking about, Scorsese and all these other people who have, who, for these, these are people who know how to develop character just because there was a break in the Hollywood system. It doesn't mean you have to abandon true character development, which goes below the surface. And it doesn't mean you have to develop true plot where you have conflicts resulting in resolutions, which result in more conflict. He does not know how to have any propulsiveness in the story. See, I feel like that is the, well, Sam, let me, let me throw the, the midlife crisis movie made by a, you know, dynamic kind of notoriously, 
like youthful direct like when i think of tarantino's movies like the you know the ratatat dialogue and reservoir dogs or pulp fiction or jackie brown or whatever like these are movies brimming with youth there's like an indestructibility to them even though you know lots of people are <laughs> destroyed like there's a lot of death and violence in everything in glorious bastards django unchained but like tarantino is a you know kind of like new hollywood he's a a young person like you go to the movies to think for him, but also to like be really entertained and like jazzed up. Does Tarantino making a midlife crisis movie work for you? Is that like an interesting dissonance for you, or was it just like? Um, no, no. I, 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 found, <laughs> I found the characters really two dimensional. Like, I, and that that's that's something that like I just didn't see what you saw. I guess, and and I love, and again, I am I am Mister Pro Tarantino. I took my grandmother to go see Django the day it came out. <laughs> How's it going between you and your grandmother? <laughs> she, didn't spe- she didn't speak English or anything. But she really like. <laughs> I, she really liked the movie. Like, I love Tarantino. It's like something I grew up on. And I just found that he, I guess, I guess I never really looked at it that he's kind of himself projecting a midlife crisis in his film industry and kind of resonating with DiCaprio's character. But you're right. There were just like, there was just no de- plot development there. It was just like a reading a Wikipedia article almost. And then, like, at the end, I love the, I, I'm not going to give away the spoilers, of course. Like, I love the end, but this is the second Tarantino movie I fell, I fallen asleep in. I fell asleep in The Hateful Eight. Me and my friends all went to go see it, and we fell asleep in the middle of the movie because he just he just drags out this dialogue so much. Well, it, it di- dialogue is not character development. Dialogue is can be chit chat if it doesn't reveal an advanced character. He doesn't know how to do it, and he and uh, people are you know it's the emperor's new clothes because he's such a hot guy who has a lot of being heads being beaten against the walls, but he doesn't know plot or character. And yeah. I hate I hate uh, to say it you have to deal with that stuff in movies because that's what you expect when you go to a movie. So I'm going to cite two sequences in particular that I think do a wonderful job of developing two of the characters, one with a lot of words and one without any words. The first is the kind of centerpiece with Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton, again, who's this kind of aging B-movie Western star who's been pushed into the role as the the heavy, the bad guy in all of these TV uh, law enforcement dramas. And he's, uh, he's on the brink of the unthinkable starring in a spaghetti western in Rome. Um, <laughs> the, the end of his career as he knows it. There's a very kind of lengthy sequence at the center of this movie where he is playing one of his last roles as a heavy that we're aware of, where he's, you know, he is filled with self-loathing, sits down next to a little girl who is a co-star in a very minor role in, in the show, who kind of susses out of him all of the anxiety and sense of impending doom and uselessness and mortality that he feels all over like a tawdry Western. Then we see him mess up in a way that's relatively minor, but that is near suicidal for him. I mean, the sequence where he is shouting at himself in the mirror and say, if you mess up one more line, I'm going to blow your brains out. And that, 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 that struck me as incredibly revealing of the fragility of this character who, you know, had just kind of flubbed something, but we real, a, a flub for a character on the brink of obsolescence is, is more than just a mistake. You know, this one more, one more trip and he feels like he is no longer, um, not just relevant. He's not, not going to be able to live. And then he comes back and he gives, whether it's actually the towering performance that someone says it is, he gives this an, an incredible performance as evil, sexy Hamlet. I think that's what the director is telling him <laughs> yeah. to do with his droopy mustache and his, and his hippie coat. And he, he redeems himself for himself to prove that, you know, regardless of the, the vehicle that he's acting in, he still has that, that drive that the studio system hasn't kind of re, ripped from him and that maybe the new Hollywood is going to celebrate, that if you throw yourself as, as passionately and personally into any character, then you can achieve something that transcends mere pulp. Like, he really, 
you know, he redeems himself through his work. And I won't go in as much detail, but the scene where Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate goes to the movies, doesn't really say a word, but just watches herself in some de- dumb Dean Martin comedy. And the the joy and the self-satisfaction and accomplishment that she gets every time the crowd laughs or claps or cheers whenever she does something on stage, there's th- uh, this transition from anxiety around the cap- how capable you are of doing something really well and then the the satisfaction and sense of self worth that comes when you realize that you're doing it, and I felt I felt both of those sequences um, really moving. Yeah, I, I mean the innocence that Margot Robbie kind of portrays there with Sharon Tate is very well done, and with like small clips of the film, there's obviously you know drawbacks to old Tarantino, and it's a little more you know revealing than I think that Tarantino has liked to be. But I like to go one point back. I, I think that Tarantino does develop characters pretty well, just not here. I, uh, the General <laughs> in Inglorious Bastards, uh, Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction. There's a lot of juxtaposition that I think the violence that Tarantino does playing outside the normal roles of movies, it kind of allows him to develop these characters in ways that aren't, you know, John Wayne or something like that. Like Not something that's so traditional. I think that the, it usually works pretty well for him. And these two scenes are kind of on the same brink where he kind of plays outside the lines, but I, I don't know. I, I thought this, I thought the Leonardo DiCaprio thing, like I thought that was kind of in line. Like you have this guy who's struggling with his self-esteem and it's pretty apparent the whole movie. And yeah, I mean, the, the scene with the mirror is obviously one of the bigger scenes for him, but it, it doesn't really lend itself to any different than the two dimension that we've kind of outlined for him so far right and let me let me just add to that the scene that you described which is being which is cited in, i think in sort of general reviews of the film the scene with the little girl uh, which concludes after he's been this uh, cowboy hamlet and uh you know he he's evil sexy hamlet evil sexy <laughs> hamlet <clears throat> the little girl who uh you know is it, it, in one of the, the, the uh, tarantino's like on a winking portrayals of the world of little child actors. I, I thought you were a child actor in 1969. But in, it, in any event, the little girl turns to him, you know, because the scene culminates and he has to heave her down and he's worried that he... improvises that he, it. He worries he said, that you he, told me Shakespeare, so I threw the girl. Right, I threw... And then, I, to hope I didn't hurt you, and she turns to him and said, no, I've got elbow pads on. All right, so that's touching. But the key thing here in terms of what we're talking about, character development, is that she turns to him and she, after having... Uh, looked at him kind of as can says to him that's the greatest acting i have ever seen now this to a guy who has a lot of self uh, uh, absence of self-confidence should be not just uh should be not just a red letter moment but a turning point so i would ask you Jim, and how does he respond his his eyes watered up he right. talks his pistol and he okay. says rick effing dalton <laughs> yeah t- yeah take a deep breath though tom uh, Look at that moment in in the in the arc. Uh, I love your enthusiasm for this kind of stuff. But in the in so so, what where does he take that insight? If it was true character development, what follows in the film should reflect that change that goes on more deeply in him. And I I'd argue with you that the the Rick Dalton because uh, Rick Dalton <clears throat> what does he do? He goes on to ex- accept all the spaghetti spaghetti western crap. You know, he, he doesn't he doesn't take the confidence that a little seven year old or eight year old girl gives him, which uh, you know, if he's the skeptical character that he is, he 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 might have been a little dubious about that. But he doesn't take that insight. It doesn't affect anything deep within him. And this is a Tarantino doesn't know that that's um, 
a character pivot point. What it is, is a cool scene that's taken up 15 mm. minutes. He doesn't take it, and he doesn't run with it. Because the Rick Dalton, he ends up to be, he's the same insecure creep who marries somebody that he doesn't know. And, you know, he doesn't have any greater sense of himself as a result of that scene at the end of the movie than he had at the beginning. Maybe he's a little, maybe he's making more money and he's more self-medicating, but he has not change so i i just See, this I contend is another that one this of the is great, not there you know the great insights of new hollywood is that development does not necessarily mean positive progress i mean i think unfortunately this proves to be the so apex is, of his career i think that you know we we cl see clearly throughout that he is an alcoholic in addition to being uh you know someone with an incredibly fragile sense of self-worth and i think the transition that happens after this brief moment of remembering you know the power of acting is that he you know he fall he he uses that as um as a a push to get whatever work that he still can uh and he he kind of he loses grasp of whatever it was that he found so satisfying there and and pursues the uh the what ultimately proves to be a, a downward spiral spiral of like self-negation don't you think he's like just chasing validation through the seven-year-old girl and then at the end of the, the movie it kind of comes full circle when he gets the validation from his neighbor sharon tate who's like oh yeah i love your movies and he's just kind of that's kind of the, the sense of the movie is like one of the plot points is him just chasing this validation for the end of his career like jordan wearing 45 like he was just like looking for that for that pat on the back to keep going and at the end of the movie he finally gets it through a simple phone call at the door saying yeah come up i like your movies totally it's chasing not it's the validation but it's also the fantasy that people have always you know loved and hated about hollywood is that you know tarantino i think draws attention this is what's so great about movies about movies i feel like it draws attention to the the artificiality of art right like art is stuff that is made by people uh and it can turn out whichever way people making it want it to turn to and unfortunately that often means that you know suppression of kind of everyday uh, and much larger social troubles in in support of, you know, the heroes riding off into uh, the sunset and that dissonance between the tragedy of individual lives and the fantasy of the, the dream factory whoa, 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 whoa. Is, uh, <laughs> is so painful. <laughs> we're going to get to that when we talk about the end of the movie too because I feel like fantasy trumps reality in a really dangerous and entertaining but ultimately like incredibly yeah. sad way so this yeah okay so mea culpa <laughs> I, I expect when I go to a movie to see a movie about people what i'm seeing here is a movie about uh is a movie about uh, uh not people but actors who are portraying people who are actors or something weird like that is going on here because uh, they're, they're you know the, the i just uh, what you guys are describing is is uh, un, unanchored from it's unanchored from reality, and, and, and so is the entire movie unanchored from the reality of 1969 in Los Angeles. Sam, um, am I wrong in that that's often what Tarantino does so well? Like, think of Reservoir Dogs. It follows uh, you know, a police officer who the entire movie is acting like he's one of this gang. I mean, the like performance uh, and trying to convince a group of people that you are something that you are not is like what Tarantino does in nearly every single like movie. Like Django. Django Unchained in, in the uh, you know, Melanie LeBron's and, and Glorious Bastards. I mean, right, the art, well, cause, acting cause, is an important part of the life that Tarantino's right. interested in uh, Again, that's a generous way to talk about him, but it seems to me that it's a small art as opposed to a big art that has characters in life who are 
who, who, whose major point of interest is that they're posing as those characters that they want to be. I mean, you know, the, the brief against him, of course, is that he's, a, he's somebody who lived and, you know, li- lived in a video store and is so inundated with images that uh, that becomes more of the reality than, than the, the folks working in the store with him or walking outside. Now, that's his art. But I think, I think it's, uh, to me, it's, um, uh, it's, it's something that doesn't, draw me in for the you know for the big things that art should be about which is somehow um uh i don't know somehow i mean there's so many there's so many great movies about hollywood i'm thinking of sunset boulevard yeah. uh you know so many uh what's the wonderful movie with uh with dick powell who plays the screenwriter and there's kirk douglas uh it's about like the b movie producer some fabulous movies about screenwriters and uh, has been actors that that you are wonderfully drawn into what the tensions and the highs and lows of Hollywood are. There is zero, uh, 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 in comparing uh, uh, this Tarantino film with those in terms of um, uh, life in Hollywood. This is about imagery only. You're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Alan Appel and Sam Haddleman about Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time, dot 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 in hollywood you know i actually i watched the kind of first 40 minutes of inglorious bastards his uh kind of fantasy revenge tale set in uh nazi occupied france and i don't know when the last time you was uh, that you saw that sam but the movie begins with chapter one once upon a time dot 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 in nazi occupied france i feel like tarantino is always you know he has long been interested in again this this fantasy world the storytelling world that that movies are capable of producing and of like you know letting people lose themselves in for a little bit but he never quite lets the audience like get off the hook entirely i think often because of the the sharpness of the dialogue and the gruesomeness of the violence i don't know does does violence in tarantino movie like as we transition to talking about the end does it like do anything productive <laughs> besides like just being entertaining and being no, well done but that's the does point. it make you that, think about that's, violence that's the point to in me. A larger I guess hit? maybe i'm like the grand theft auto like gangster rap <laughs> like you know always murders on the nightly news like that's my generation but i, I desensitize lo- like i i love it i, I mean I'm, I, maybe i'm just a psycho but i, I love the violence like in glorious bastards like when you're jewish and you're growing up and your people are telling you to watch movies about the holocaust it's never good it's always like oh you gotta watch this it's so moving you gotta watch schindler's list you gotta watch this and it's always so negative and i'm always like can't the jews win ever and the inglorious bastards he gave like a 15 year old jewish boy finally an opportunity for the jews to win in a movie about nazi occupied germany which was pretty cool for me that was a pretty awesome moment for me to watch spoiler alert to watch hitler's hitler's face get shot off with a semi like that like, I, I don't know i think that he uses violence probably the best in a way that i've seen any other director use it in in a plot point like i can't th- who else comes to mind when it comes to the straight up violence maybe scorsese or some of totally, that, or yeah, that nature yeah. um but i just i, I feel like <laughs> alan does not like the violence <laughs> no I, I listen well anyway i uh we you you want to talk about the about the end of the film? So let's. So we're going to start moving towards spoiler territory. This is what is tied into. I mean, this movie is loosely oriented around the Manson family murders of Sharon Tate and and I guess four of her house guests on Sierra Drive in August of 1969. Um, I'll I'll leave it at that. But yeah. So so the 
we can you can talk about the ending or violence in Tarantino movies or whatever. whatever I can't remember the ending. You guys talk around well, the, uh, talk the around end. The, the, uh, I, I was expecting the fireworks. The whole movie, I was like, oh, oh this, it, this ver- murder is going to be violent. It, like it's like Charles Manson murders by Quentin Tarantino. I was expecting it to look like Saw. Like I was ready the whole movie. And I, I should like, say Rick Dalton lives next door to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski yeah. on right. uh, on Cielo Drive. Oh. And the movie Colney's kind oh, of last. He happens to have a flamethrower at home. Yeah, so, yeah, from the film. And I, I thought <laughs> the fourteenth fist of Polanski. Like, I mean, something something classic do you Tarantino. The, the seek the kind of insert sequence, the excerpt know, from Fourteen Fist of Colanski. It's where called he planting said, a seed and reaping it later. No, he did well, that well. But it also shows what the violence, the fantasy violence that movies, you know, that's that the B movie kind of systems that was that bread and butter. I mean, that's, that's the appeal of that era of filmmaking that losing yourself in the, the fantasy revenge of that violence and then having it manifest itself in the real world of these characters. Ultimately I find incredibly sad because well, but this ain't how it works. (laughs) But uh, so, so when you're talking about then you're talking about the, the, the attack on the house and the, and, and the, and, uh, um, where, 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 <laughs> and Brad Pitt uh, being stabbed but somehow surviving right. and then, so instead of and then the slowly to... dripping can of dog food <laughs> somehow splattering on the face of one of the attackers so that she's disabled and can ultimately be incinerated <laughs> by the flamethrower. I mean, ladies and gentlemen... All played to the soundtrack of the Mamas and the Papas. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I want to point to the fact that even, even people who love Quentin Tarantino, I think... What the ending of this film does uh, uh, is is uh, especially the sequences where where uh, I don't know which one is the Brad Pitt or, or DiCaprio that that bangs one of the uh, one of the Manson girls' the, heads. It's again. the Brad, yeah, the That's the stunt, the stunt okay. couple who is so, right, the stunt double, right, and, and his and, last and, sense of purposefulness. I mean, and, and it's like somebody's head being turned into grapefruit, which I guess is the quintessential Quentin Tarantino. It was dope. I think you could make the case that that. Giving into his obsession, into the signature kind of scene that his that his that his uh, you know his uh, fans like, I think that even in the movie's own terms, and uh, it it destroys his film because the terms of the movie are an elegiac evocation of the mm. billboards and the era and the light and the music, I and mean, he's got like a soundtrack and um, he they didn't stint on costumes or scenes, and then you have this weird thing that's taking place and that. H- however much it 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 meets your tom your um your sense of that it it's uh you know appropriate for um uh, for the uh uh a kind of view of 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 the era and its films uh, it's just over the top and it's a it, if it, it, so if the movie is a if the movie is a uh is a symphony suddenly the tone is all off in the ending it's utterly off and to me it, 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 you don't know what to make of it. Ooh, I see, I feel like it's built so well to that moment, especially. I mean, probably the the turning point into you know the the last act of the movie, and then I think the coda is maybe the most moving part of it. But the, the transition to the last act is uh, the the Rolling Stones song "Out of Time," where we hear Mick Jagger singing over and over and over again, "Baby, baby, baby, you're out of time." And it's sunset on August eighth, nineteen sixty nine, and we see all of the, you know, the the Taco Bells and the the you know porno movie theaters in L.A. and all of these gaudy, you know, gratuitous neon lights turning on to satisfy like the basest instincts of this artificial town. And and 
and there's this sense of in, you know inevitable kind of inevitability and doom that is hanging over these characters because we as you know watchers almost everyone even if you don't know the details of the Manson murders you know the general sense of what happened yeah. I mean these people brutally murdered by a gang of roving out of out of control yeah. hippies uh, and they look like they could have been in Vampire Weekend and like. <laughs> and then the movie twists that into this kind of like within glorious bastards or django unchained this revenge fantasy that on the one hand feels very satisfying to know that you know the pregnant young movie idol is not stabbed to death but rather they get killed themselves but also it's incredibly disturbing i mean the way that brad pitt who is this embodiment of kind of an older school masculine bravado what he does to those characters i don't think that you know unfortunately probably a lot of people watching it will really get off that bounce but watching it i was appalled by it at the same time that i was riveted by it i think that's what tarantino does so well and that you know this is a character who very clearly killed his wife he is you know he's he even though there's an elegiac kind of aura over this movie i don't think that these are necessarily good admirable you know role model characters i think that's where tarantino often rightfully gets criticized or you know, yeah, well, having his cake it, and eating it too. And it's that an anti-hero. You know? They're anti-heroes and I think particularly disturbing anti-heroes even when they are executing really justifiable violence. I, but what I, do you think, so? I loved the last scene. I thought that that was probably the most redeemable part of the of the movie it was kind of the slow build up to this chaotic end. I didn't think the pieces exactly fit throughout the entire film, but the uh, the end was I I just love the the sequence of events and it, and kind of drawing back to the western theme. I think it kind of destroys the innocence that kind of is brought up by these old these old Hollywood references is you get like usually in old Hollywood it's like oh we shot the bad guy and he fell over and, and Quentino kind of throws it on his throws that on its I don't think I can say this word throws it on its butt and like kind of just ma- reminds you like hey you're watching a Quentin Tarantino movie and I thought that that was kind of when he owned up to the fact that it was his movie because you're right like throughout the entire film it's kind of like drawing back to these movies that he obviously referenced and at the end, he kind of took the the concept of the of the hair of the hero killing the bad guy, kind of like in a fistful of dollars when Clint when Clint Eastwood shoots all four of the bad guys at the same time. He's like, "Don't make me do it," and then he just pops them all right there. I thought that that's kind of how it fell at the end. It's like the the redeeming hero esque normal qualities were given to Brad Pitt's anti hero. Like he, throughout the entire film, he's kind of the anti hero, but at the end, he has this normal moment of heroism where he just smacks. I can't say that word either. He just smacks these three completely irredeemable murderers and I, I just and I yet it does right, so, I mean think of Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver there's someone who like yeah. undertakes an incredible amount of bloodshed to save a child prostitute but he is right. if anything he is a model for like I don't know right. teen shooters or something right. he is no one that we need to admire okay. and I think Scorsese and Tarantino okay boys that. let's take a deep <laughs> breath here let's get you away from your video games now here's the there's a movie here that Quentin Tarantino doesn't even recognize and he has not done anything with it you know Sam talked about the bromance between the stuntman and and uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio character. A little more than a brother, a little less than a wife, as one character. <laughs> that's, that's more than a brother, less than a wife. That is a great line. What is this relationship? It should shift. It should be explored. Doesn't Bre- the Brad Pitt character have envy on some level? Doesn't the stuntman want to be the actor himself? What's going on between the two when they're so close? When the, they, they finally go to Italy and... And we, we should mention that it's an homage to uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and he is making Sergio Leone movies. But when he brings this wife back, and he's got to apologize to Brad Pitt that you no longer can be in Malaya. There's a movie here, ladies and gentlemen, and he utterly doesn't know that he has the movie, or if he does, he ignores it by spending his time doing other stuff. Now, mea culpa, Agreed. it's there, he doesn't know it, 
and he's both the writer and he's the director. And I, you know, Jerry Lewis used to make movies, being the writer and the director and the producer. And there was nobody around to tell him, "Hey, hold off there, Jerry. Let's let's not do this and let's do that." And you know, there's sort of no there's sort of no control here. So I, I I would I would make the case that he doesn't know how to make movies, and it's right there in front of us. But even the kind of movies that he makes that that you guys are so enamored of, I mean. This, the, what's he's, you know, apart from its interest as an artifact of Hollywood and all this interesting um, movie history stuff that you that you see in it, and and uh, you know, it's it's good to talk about the movie itself. Is you know, it just has, it's it's um, you know, it's sort of like all appetizers, no main course, folks. Oh man, see, I I think that he recognizes that there is the movie where there's some kind of you know a, a falling out, a much more realistic. <clears throat> falling out between the two who I saw less as like lovers, even though they're totally plausible reading there, but I just saw it as like doubles of themselves. And that's a very important trope in any movie about movies. I mean, if you've ever seen Mulholland Drive, but you know, the kind of, there is in movies about movies, there is the actual person and then the fantasy version of that person. And I feel like we have that, that unfortunately, you know, with movies playing such an important role in shaping kind of cultural understanding of what it means to be an American and the appropriate use of violence in situ or inappropriate use of violence. Um, I, I feel like that is a really interesting uh, theme to explore, but here the fantasy wins out over any possible representation of reality, getting back to maybe as we wrap up, like Sam's, reference to the coda which is not just this really violent outburst against the hippie monsters but rather rick dalton getting exactly what he has longed for in a totally unrealistic way and i think a really tragic way because there's no way like this this seems to be him in completely you know deluded land not only is he recognized by the young up-and-coming artists He's invited in to be friends with them and maybe potential collaborators with them. That crane shot going over Plancy's house and looking in as he hugs, you know, Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring and all these people who weren't killed. That just killed me. No pun intended, because I thought this is so clearly not, you know, we're no longer anywhere close to the realm of reality. And that is the allure of movies, but also the really like dangerous, destructive part of it, because that I think Tarantino's aware of that. You know, when you lose yourself in the fantasy, you're just completely divorced from the actual consequences yeah. of violence like this. I know. Right. I'm, I'm, what his fun his is wife he? of two minutes has just taken fifteen sleeping pills. <laughs> it's going to be a great marriage, folks. Yeah, I, you, you know, <laughs> I, I, I agree. I think that there was just such a movie outline there, and then Tarantino just didn't follow it. Like he had the, the classic western, he had the most gruesome murders in probably Hollywood history, and he just completely didn't touch. He it. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know how to work hard at story because he doesn't care about it. And you guys are working very hard to give him. <laughs> You know, give him grades for uh, you know whatever it is. Oh, I saw this movie twice, Alan. It's five hours of my life. That well, there you <laughs> go. And you know, it's, this, this is so interesting that you know, <laughs> Sam. Uh, you know, I I, 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 there were sections of Inglorious Bastard that I was riveted by. It's so funny that I don't even, I don't even remember like uh, shooting Hitler's face, but uh, I do remember the sequence where the Jewish family was uh, hidden under sure, the floorboards. Yeah, the yeah uh, you know, um, but it actually. It actually put me in mind of, um, uh, you know, I never had these fantasies about Hitler, but I grew up in a big Jewish family in Los Angeles, and, you know, my we weren't allowed to buy Volkswagens, and we had to spell the, you know, because of all that. It was, you know, um, and so we're kind of uh, uh, was revenge in the air. I, 
my point is that uh, the, the older people were were you know were the Holocaust was on their mind, but what was on my mind was Davy Crockett, you know, at the Alamo when I was eight or nine years old, and uh, you know I saw the Fess Parker film and all the Disney stuff, and I was devoted to my coonskin cap, and I used to keep saying to myself, why? If one of those guys just had a machine gun at the Alamo, uh, that would have been the way to beat uh, Santa Ana's troops. And, what, you know, so my point is only that I think Quentin Tarantino is that nine, a nine-year-old boy who yeah. hopes that there would have been a machine gun at the Alamo. And that's great. You know, that's that's great to have that kind of passion or that moment. But to make movies and spend $100 million with you know various versions of i uh, you know forgive me no i think i think it's it's a it's a slippery it's a tight it's a dangerous tightrope to walk but i think that in many of his movies including this one which honestly may be one of my favorite tarantino movies i think that he manages to achieve both the catharsis of watching like ostensibly like better people uh stopping violence by ostensibly terrible people while also requiring that self-awareness that like this is not history this is fantasy and to give in too much of it is like a really dangerous proposition as entertaining as it may be but it sounds like i've not won over uh once upon a time in yeah. mr uh curmudgeon corner over here i mean i didn't, I didn't like it either i didn't, I didn't like yeah the, I, I didn't that's like right. the movie either I did that's not, right we just took I, we took I a vote so, two to one tom i was <laughs> so bored i was so bored like I, i'm obviously a, fan, a quentin tarantino fanboy because so, so sam's bored because uh for different reasons and i'm bored for different reasons <laughs> but you're interested and you, you're not bored because you're a kind of you're you're a kind of movie historian monkey, and this is just like this is like the it's touchdown catnip. for you. There it's catnip go. for you. There you go. <laughs> and God bless you. Someone's got to be into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of thoughts to mull over there for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which you know, according to the the myth of Tarantino himself, this is his second to last movie. He kind of said said that he's only going to make ten movies over the course of his career. So the the penultimate Tarantino. Fantasy Revenge. I think Kill oh, so Bill Volume 3 is coming next. Kill Bill Volume 3. Oh, interesting. I, What's going to be the next one? Last Kill, one? Kill Bill Volume 3. So, uh, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is playing just about anywhere movies are shown, including the Criterion in downtown New Haven. Um, I would say definitely check it out. I don't know where... It sounds like, even though you didn't like it, would you guys recommend seeing it? Or is this um, a skip? If you're, Tom, if you're Tom Breen, I'm going to recommend it. But if you're like a normal person trying to take your like, friends to the movies or something like that, probably not for you. But if you're like... If you like that type, if you, I think the main issue is that it was a Western movie in a time where Westerns is not necessary. And I think that's why I think the disconnect's really there. Is that like, of course, in 1960, a bunch of dialogue and a bunch of shoot 'em up scenes are really going to be something for, to, to, for the eye. But in like 2019, shoot 'em up scenes are, are a dime a dozen. You get them all the time. So okay. I'm going to say no, unless you're like really into movies. Uh, I, I think the Westerns are absolutely fabulous. One of the, uh, the, the great things that, we invented here. We bring back the Oxbow incident and all the wonderful moral westerns of the 1950s. Oh, Mar- see that? I feel like he the throws slow, slow movies. And by the way, the and morality by, and, of all that stuff. Well, and by the way, we you know what's it's an homage to Sergio Leone's spaghetti westerns, which are which are very slow. And I would watch a Sergio Leone spaghetti western movie. Uh, I, I would rather spend my money on seeing that. But if me if too. you ask me, what would I go to see it again, or what I recommend it? I, I what my feeling is that I'd like to buy Sam's grandmother a ticket to see this one. So <laughs> <I'd like to. laughs>
the showdown the showdown at Spawn Ranch between the Hawaiian t-shirt wearing Brad Pitt uh, and and all of these young uh, feral hippies I think is uh, is as close to a 2019 western that at least I need I need for for right now I'd also very quickly before I go I, if anyone is interested in learning more about the Manson story and it's incredible and really unsettling overlap with this era of transition between the old studio system and new Hollywood <clears throat> check out Karina Longworth's podcast you must remember this she did a whole season on Charles Manson and how you know he came to Hollywood aspiring to be an actor and all of the you know family members that he brought into his cult he kind of won them over through this idolatry of the you know cinema that they ultimately rejected mm-hmm. along with white supremacy and some Helder other really Skelter. odious men, you know obsession with the Beatles it's a really fascinating story that intersects mm. with the Beach Boys and with Kenneth Anger and you know with all, all of these you know iconic 19 late 1960s moments. Right. so right. check out you must remember this it's um if you're into movies the history of movies uh charles manson oddly enough right. really overlapped with a lot can of i just have one footnote please yeah so the footnote is is simply that um th- this is in my category of films that does a huge disservice to the 60s because even though it's ostensible subject is it, it's a movie about the movies it it, it you know it, it it gives the impression as many parts of for example um of um uh what's the tom hanks film uh Catch, catch me if you can. No, the 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 guy who's at all the historical events. He oh, plays Forrest Gump. Gump. Yeah, like Forrest Gump's. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but those moments that right. deals with the you know the peace buses and then it it, it gives it gives the sense that all the '60s were about was um uh you know great songs and 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 violence and uh, drugs and rock and roll and in fact uh you know and 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 the moments of of um of a once upon a time in Hollywood that I really resented were uh, uh, when, yeah. when the, when the DiCaprio character says, these fucking hippies came up here, these dirty fucking hippies. In fact, Hollywood was very liberal, even though he is a little older than the younger people in Hollywood. This was, not, you know, only if we were playing John Wayne would have that any relationship to reality. It does a total disservice to, you know, to, to what the sixties was, was like politically. Well, I, I don't know. Well, we've got to wrap up, but I think that, it is perfectly appropriate to throw the word reactionary conservative at either this movie or the world that Leo Leonardo DiCaprio's character embodies and that, you know, Clint Eastwood is no paragon of, of liberal uh, understanding. No, and, that's true. And I think the, the B movie Westerns that, you know, constantly vilified people for having like droopy mustaches and speaking in a Mexican accent um, are definitely not the, the high point of, right. of but, Hollywood but, tolerance. Right. But let's remember Jane Fonda. Yeah, <laughs> Jane Potter. Hanoi, Hannah, Jane. Wait, Hanoi, Jane. <laughs> Thank you so much to Sam and Alan. A great and, pleasure. And for pleasure. talking about Thank Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And go to deepfocusradio.com to check out uh, lots, lots more episodes uh, and conversations about movies and New Haven.